Right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to another episode of Thoughts on Films. My name is Fikri, and this is, of course, a podcast that thinks a lot on films in Malaysia and beyond. Um, as is the case for quite a number of our recent episodes, we are going a little bit further beyond uh, because we will be discussing a particular Indonesian film uh, in great detail. But before we get to that, I would like to uh, get us going with uh, our co uh, host for today, if, if you will, Miss um, Nadia Sharifa. Good afternoon, Nadia. How are you doing? Good afternoon, sir. I'm doing good. Are you ready to go with our discussion about Panyalin uh, Chahaya, aka the photocopier? Yes. yes. We're excited about this, actually. There's plenty. I mean, I saw the film, thought it was great, but there's plenty to talk about. Uh, almost from one scene to the other. Uh, and I also expect you shared me some stuff about this film with regards to uh, the, the, the memes <laughs> yes. the film and everything, which I thought was great. So maybe there's a bit more of that side that we can kind of expect from um, your part of the discussion here. But um, yes, in case, ladies and gentlemen, those of you listening at home uh, have not cottoned on to what it is that we'll be talking about today, we will be uh, discussing in greater detail the film, Penyalin Chaya. Um, an Indonesian crime mystery film co-written and directed by Rafael Regas uh, Banuteja in his featured directorial debut. I'm fairly certain, however, Nadia, that I am butchering that name there. Um, so I'm just going to go with uh, Regas Banuteja. Um, would you say that that's the correct pronunciation? Banuteja? Banu- Sometimes the J is pronounced like a Y in some cases in Indonesia here. So I'm not entirely certain. Um. What do you think? I think it's Banuteja, yeah. Banuteja, right? So yeah, I'm going to go with that. Right, this is his feature-length directorial debut. The film tells the story of Suriani, uh, played by Shanina Shawalita Cinnamon. <laughs> so this is the thing. I'm reading this because it's C-I-N-N-A-M-O-N. But I'm guessing, you know, I suppose as an Indonesian, she might pronounce it as uh, Cinnamon. So I... You know, I'm, I'm just going to work with my biases here, and I hope you guys can bear that in mind. Um, apologies, uh, Shadanina, if I have uh, gotten that wrong. But nevertheless, coming back to the story of Suryani, she is essentially a model student working with the art students and putting on a stage play. Uh, they were successful in getting a grant to, to go to Japan. And in celebrating their success, she takes part in a party where she got drunk. Essentially, for the first time, she's, she's a very, like, you know, the, the so-called stereotypical prim and proper um, a student, uh, you know, uh, there's a strong aspect of religion in this in this part of the discussion as well because she's a Muslim uh, student. She has a strong uh, Muslim uh, family in that sense. So, so this is like a major thing that perhaps we'll get into discussing a bit more later on. But basically, she got drunk for the first time here, completely loses it, you know, forgets what's going on for the rest of the night. Um, and there are selfies of her being drunk, ladies and gentlemen, which jeopardizes her scholarship and continued education because her family is very much working class in many respects. And so this is not a great situation to be in. So shunned by her family and the university, um, she displays a very strong and creative spirit, something which I really, really like and admire because she refuses to give up and, and decides instead to find out what's going on, like who actually took these pictures, what happened that night, and, and how she can prove, therefore, that she is still deserving of, of the, the scholarship per se. And to that end, she turned to her friend Amin, played by Chico Kurniawan, uh, who is a photocopier on campus, uh, to kind of like just really figure out what's the story here. So that's the mystery part, if you will, um, which is very interesting in many ways. The film also stars Lutisha 
as Farah, Jerome Kurnia as Tariq, Dia Panendra as Anggun, Julio Parengkuan as Rama, Lukman Sardi, of course, as <laughs> Sur's father, um, Ruth Marini as Sur's mother, Yayan Ruhian as Rama's father, Landung Simatupang as Burhan, and Rukman Rosadi as Sur's college dean. Um, so we'll be talking about some of these cast members a bit more in a short while, but I'm keen to kind of just discuss the director a little bit more. Uh, Regas is a filmmaker from Yogyakarta, having graduated from uh, IKJ, Institute Kesenian Jakarta, as well in the field of filmmaking and film directing. Um, so he's basically like this, I don't know, it's like this superstar, you know, uh, indie slash short filmmaker who's, who's been on the scene for quite a while. So, you know, it's his first feature film, but, you know, if you look at his uh, filmography for his short films, like Senyawa, Lemantun, uh, Lembusura, Floating Chopin, uh, Pranjak, these are films that have been very, very um, celebrated, if you will, and, and awarded as well in certain places, like uh, the, the Berlin International Film Festival. Uh, in 2015, he was uh, the youngest director chosen for that particular event. I think he was 22 years old at the time. Uh, Pranjak in 2016 took home the Laika Cine Discovery Prize at the Cannes Film Festival, making him the first Indonesian filmmaker to have won an award from the Cannes Film Festival. So, ladies and gentlemen, those of you listening at home, Nadia, you're listening on the other side of the screen per se. Just think about all the great Indonesian filmmakers. This is a dude who got a first one, right? Um, at least at the Cannes Film Festival there. So, so there's something very interesting there. Um, of course, we do need to note that the Leica Cine Discovery Prize is a prize for films made using the Leica lens. So there's a bit of that extra context, but it doesn't take the shine of that particular trophy in any shape or form. And this is a, a film uh, followed up with Tada Yang Gila di Kota Ini uh, in 2019, which won, again, quite a number of awards and was selected for uh, a number of very prestigious festivals, including the 2019 Busan International Film Festival and the 2020 Locarno. Film Festival. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is the road leading to Penalin Chaya premiering at the 2021 Busan International Film Festival in the new Currents program, often highlighting some of the younger or more emerging filmmakers. Um, most recently, Nadia and I also had a number of episodes where we discussed some of the best Indonesian films from 2021. This is a you know a film that could be argued to be the best of uh, 2021, even though it was actually uh, released more generally in Indonesia in in uh, just this year, really, just a few weeks ago, right? So it won 12 Chitra Awards out of 17 at the uh, 2021 Festival Film Indonesia. Um, there's a lot of, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of awards here. I'm just going to mention the first three, Best Feature Film, Best Director, Best Detector, right? <laughs> okay. I'm not trying to demean any of the other awards, but I kind of want to get through a fair amount of this as soon as possible. Um, and on that note, of course, it goes without saying that this is, a spoiler-filled discussion of the film as a whole. Um, so for those of you who have not seen the film, uh, do bear this in mind. You might want to check it out first before you jump back in to this particular episode. And on that note, we are going to get with, going with the first part where we'll discuss the film before we'll discuss some of the bigger picture context surrounding the issues in the film, uh, in the second part of the film, uh, in our second part of this episode, rather. Nadia, I mean, I just said earlier, I thought this was an excellent film. I wonder what you think of the film. I wonder whether there were any particular scenes, lines, you know, moments or actors really uh, that kind of stood out for you in any shape or form. Um, what do you think, Nadia? I think a scene, I do have uh, my favorite scene, which is the scene from the very last uh, bit of the film, mm. which is 
after they um, spread the flyers away and then they photocopied their faces. I think it's it's just visually pleasing, even though it's. I think I think it means something, which means I don't know. Maybe like they 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 feel free enough. Mm. They you know they they are reclaiming their freedom in a way. Mm. But also, it's a very visually pleasing scene to watch. So I really like that one, and mm. like all of them, um, all of them are super expressive in that one, which is very contrasting with their um with the rest of the film where where their expression their expressions are relatively flat i think for most of the time and um the other the other thing is um actors i actually really like shanina's performance it's i think it's it's very good it's very believable in a way and it's it's very natural which is i think one of the qualities that actors go for and also lutetia's um acting i liked her since bebas at uh, the 2019 film which is an adaptation from the korean film sunny i think and i think it's just interesting how she always play like this um mean girl trope which is not really mean but you know always mean at the start that, that kind of trope um Yeah, so I really like um, the two female characters, Suryani and Farah. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely great. I mean, I I certainly like talking about the the, the last scene first, so to speak. You know, that's um, I, I thought it was great because it kind of like visualizes. You say it's a very visual scene, and I think it's it's the meaning visualized here because in in the film itself. Um, you see in a number of different instances where we are dealing with digital messages being passed around, you know, selfies or, or, or pictures or or um, what was the documents that um, uh, Suryani kind of shared with, with this administration. All this was shared on, on social media, like WhatsApp and such, right? So all this were digital, right? Um, the last scene, however, is like... Um, Uh, it, it works as a more physical manifestation of that, you know, because everybody was just tweeting, uh, not tweeting, but photocopying um, uh, images of themselves. Uh, for those of you, ladies, for the ladies and gentlemen listening to this and they might not have an idea, basically in the last scene, um, uh, Sur and, and uh, what's her name? Farah kind of wheeled up uh, the, the photocopier to the top of, of one of the school's buildings, one of the university's buildings, and then they just photocopied confessionals, basically, right? So they wrote, um, you know, what happened to them, why people didn't believe them, why, how this made them feel, and they identified the perpetrator, and, you know, this person did this and all this kind of stuff. And then they kind of just threw out copies of these, you know, all over, um, you know, for, for basically from the top of the building. And so visually, it's, it's, it's a stunning effect. Um, it kind of calls back to an earlier scene in the film, if you remember when um, the Matahari Theatre Group that uh, the our main characters were were basically a part of, um, they were feted and celebrated for their success, you know, and there was a bit of that confetti raining down at the start of, of the film. And so this kind of calls back to something that happened earlier in the film as well. But also I think in terms of the meaning, it kind of really gets to just um, a more visual and a more traditional manifestation of something which occurred in the film itself, which is something going viral, you know, you, you tweet it or you, you put it on, on social media and whatnot and people share it. This is like a more physical and old school way of doing that. So 
old school whale, <laughs> old school way of doing that. So I apologize that, ladies and gentlemen. My my son is looking at me thinking, huh? Ayah bilang whale. <laughs> um, so so that's uh, yeah, it's a very good scene. I totally agree with you there. Um, Letitia is very cool. I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll be touching base with her a little bit more later on in the episode, but she just, <laughs> I just messaged you about this after watching the film. She's just cool. I mean, there's, there's no other way to describe it. There's a bit of that anti-hero, a bit of that rebel, a bit of that, you know, somebody who pushes the boundaries and all this kind of stuff. But there's a strong, um, um, apa? there's a strong uh, quality to her character where she just cuts through all the, the red tape, all the BS and all this stuff. And she's just like, you know, at least for her part, as far as I can see, just get things done. So that's a, a, another very strong spirit that, that I really like uh, in the context of the film there. Um, I looked up a filmography earlier uh, and I noted Bebas. I haven't seen that. And there's another film called My Generation, which I hadn't seen either. But I hadn't seen this film precisely because I didn't want to watch it because I saw the trailer I saw the trailer for the film um, and uh, there was a part, basically it's about uh, rich kids, uh, you know, and, and going through a number of the trials and tribulations and whatnot. But in the trailer, there's one part where the father kind of threatened, um, not, not threatened, but basically saying that if you don't stop doing this, um, you're not going to Australia and whatnot. Papa, Papa hanya hantar kamu ke Singapura atau something like that. that. You're only going to Singapore. And then that the reaction to that is like, it's like the biggest punishment in the world. And yet for me, I'm watching the trailer and I'm thinking, Singapore's all right? What are you talking about? You know? <laughs> Your punishment is going to Singapore? It's like, what's, what's the context that we're dealing with here, you know, in terms of the characters, you know, social life and all this kind of stuff. So I, that, that was a bit of a turnoff for me at that time. Um, but maybe I'm, I'm at fault for, for judging the film in that way, but my contention is trailers are there for us to judge the film in a way. So yeah, um, to decide whether we want to watch it or not. So we'll see now that I know that she's a part of the film, we'll see whether I, I'll, I'll give it a spin. But um, coming back to this film, however, Penyalin Chaya, um, yeah, I, I thought that that's another... Uh, there's a, there's a good scene as well. Um, there's quite a number of scenes for me that stand out. Even now, thinking off the top of my head, um, a, a scene uh, or a moment where um, uh, Sur trying to retrace her steps in in the trying to find out what happened to her. Um, she uh, she she intentionally got drunk. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know if you remember that that kind of happened in the middle of the film and she was basically investigating, like, you know, she was going with the contention that somebody spiked her drink and then she tried to recall, like, what did she drink and what could she have drunk to have made her pass out? And so in trying to find out how she herself would deal with this alcohol, she intentionally got drunk in, in you know, in, in one scene in the film. So that was a very, like, another very intimate scene that is also very, um, very strong in terms of its character because we start to see both uh, Amin and, and Sur kind of like really like kind of open up. They, they say things and they share things and the style of, of the editing also shifts as well. You know, you, you have a, a bit more of the jump cuts and all this kind of stuff. So I, I like that scene um, because it's, it's different. Um, but of course, one scene that stands out for me is uh, uh, is the one that, that the meme that you shared. Um, so 
so afraid of being discovered of, of, of what she was doing. Um, she, she hid and then um, Farah goes out and whatnot. <laughs> of course, you know, Farah knows what's going on. <laughs> she just uh, basically uh, reveals the fact that she knows what's going on, but in a very interesting and very cool way. <laughs> um, so that's very, very interesting. In terms of scenes, plenty uh, that we can talk about here. I, I kind of just want to jump into some of the more uh, technical perspectives uh, first, uh, or rather the, the filmmaking and the storytelling side of things. I, I, I just thought, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, the story that's very interesting about this film. Uh, there's a part where Suriani is finding her, looking for her mother's phone using her laptop. Um, I didn't know that, that we can do that. So... Uh, so that kind of really is great to set up her skills to show that she's really good at what she does. Um, and so this is something that can come in handy a bit more later on as well. And also the scene where uh, Amin um, uh, is selling thesis, basically, right? Joa uh, Scripsi. <laughs> uh, of course, officially, ladies and gentlemen, as a lecturer, it's not something that I condone. But in the context of the film, uh, it was a, a really... Um, um, it's just great to see the intricate system where if you want to look for this level of thesis or, or, or work or essay for this subject, right, in, in this, done in, in this particular way, right, there's a certain process that goes through this, right? You tell the middleman to, to, to kind of like um, uh, do this or do that and whatnot. And then the, 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 the way the whole thing is kind of laid out, uh, I thought it was very, very, uh, very intriguing. I've not seen uh, of, the, of that kind of stuff before. Um, uh, although I, I did catch one of my students cheating last semester. Um, I wonder whether she like got into the back of a truck somewhere in the middle of Jakarta um, <laughs> to, to, to buy these, uh, these essays or whatnot on the thumb drive. <laughs> so so it's, uh, that's something that was enlightening for me. I thought that was a, a great scene. I, I kind of want to uh, check in with you in, in, in regards to some of the cultural discussions as we can see in this film, Nadia. Uh, there's a bit of a clash of culture between what we can see between, as I mentioned earlier, Suryani's family and her as well, actually. You know, she, she, she at least prior to the party, she didn't drink. Um, she doesn't smoke and all this kind of stuff. So I think that's a, that's a very strong conservative slash modest slash uh, quote-unquote Islamic behavior here. Um, and yet her friends, families, particularly... Uh, is it uh, Tariq? I think it's Tariq, right? Uh, the one with um, uh, the, 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 the big house and everything. You know, it's, for them, it's just like, you know, drinking. For them, it's just like Tuesday. You know, it's just a normal thing. Why not? So we see a bit of this clash here. And, and there were a number of scenes or a number of shots in this film where uh, I wrote down here in the, in the rundown, ladies and gentlemen, alcohol-fueled parties that wouldn't look out of place in, an, in a Western American, you know, uh, high school film, per se, you know. And so we also see the, the dichotomy in behavior and perception between arts and non-arts students as well. Right? Suryani is actually not an art student, but um, she was involved with the Matahari Theater Group in, in setting up their uh, website and, and online presence. Uh, and that was something that not everybody was particularly fond of. You know? So there was, I think there was this perception or this image of art students and whatnot that is uh, not particularly positive. I just wonder, based on your perspective, Nadia, um, how accurate are these uh, cultural, uh, uh, you know, behaviors or depictions uh, in Indonesia? I think it's actually pretty accurate, um, especially for the part 
where it clashes between the um, more Islamic culture and the more free culture, the more westernized culture, if you will. Because, I mean, talking from my perspective, I experience that. I don't drink. I don't go to parties, but my friends do. But I think one of the things that make it different with my experience is that my friends know I don't do parties, I don't drink. That's why they never ask me to. Meanwhile, Sur here, her friends are kind of pushy. You know, it's like you have to drink this or else you're not cool. I mean, my friends never say anything like that. They they are more respect respecting, I think. It's so it's either not accurate or I'm just surrounded by really decent people or or both probably <laughs> or both probably and uh for the art student thing I think it's quite accurate as well I think there's a uh, there's a perception here for the art student where they are super free so yeah that's why probably like because they're free so they're more associated with freedom which is probably like more westernized which is not always true but i think that's the stereotype we have here um is, is it a negative kind of thing though when you know when when you say that you're free bebas and whatnot you know you're freer in terms of your is, is is it seen as people being a bit looser in terms of the morals or a bit you know, more willing to push the boundaries in terms of doing stuff that's frowned upon by society? Is that something that, that exists there? I think for that one, I'm, I'm not very sure actually, because I don't think like the, like the partying, the drinking is only done strictly by the art students in Indonesia. So I don't think that um, super niche stereotype exists. Um, but art student being eccentric, I think it's, it's one thing. And then um, art student being, even for me, when I first started in uh, college and then a business student actually asked me, so you're studying arts, are you drawing stuff? And I'm like, what, what do you have in mind? <laughs> We're on the same school actually. What do you have in mind? Yeah, I, I mean, if, if the person from the same institution that I am, can have a totally different perspective from what an art student is studying, then I figured then probably the public will have, probably they will think like painting and like full on like mad artist, probably. Probably that's a stereotype, I think. In, in Malaysia, certainly as far as I know, um, it's more to do with perceived levels of intellect. So you do the arts. So you have that separation of, of streams that begin even in high school, unfortunately. Um, so you get to a certain stage of your secondary school education uh, journey in Malaysia where you kind of have to choose between science and arts. Um, and, and because, uh, you know, you, you need a certain level of grades to get into science, um, that the, the, the result of all this is that there's a perception that, you know, you know, if you're an art student, you know, whether you take part in the art stream or not, um, you know, if you're, if you're in that context, you, you are seen to be a bit more, uh, stupid, uh, a bit less uh, uh, intellectual, you know, or your marks are not great uh, and all this kind of stuff. So that's something that has followed through the um, you know, art students, basically, even as, as they go off to university, because even when you get to the university context, there's still, uh, I would say, that perception that, that a fair number of people hold about uh, university students. So you go and do business or you go and do science or, or medical studies and whatnot that is seen as, oh, wow, so you must be, 
good. But if you're an art student, whether you are a fine art student or whether you're doing something like what I did before, which is communications, for instance, you know, it was still seen in some quarters as, as a bit lesser uh, compared to some of the other uh, study areas and whatnot. So unfortunately, yeah, we, we do see such separations um, which, which exist. Um, maybe that's somewhat universal. Um, in, in some cases, I suspect if we, if we go over to other places, we might find similar things going on there. We might apply a bit more of, of that similarity to the familial perspective as well, because we have very different um, ideas about family structures. I, I, I mean, again, this might not be a big deal for a lot of people watching the film, but uh, again, looking at, um, for instance, uh, Suryani's uh, family, for instance, right? Uh, um, I, I need to note this earlier. Um, I, I think I got a bit mixed up with Karik and and uh, Rama, but anyways, uh, uh, Suryani's family and Rama's family, right? Um, Suryani's family is, you know, working class, you know, money is, is really difficult to find. Um, you know, why are you going off to the party? You're supposed to stay at home, help your mother running, you know, the, the uh, restaurant, the apa? Wartek, um, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, whereas Rama's family is like, you know, there's, <laughs> there's, um, it's like a how do you describe it? It's not a guard, um, but it's it's like an admin person in front of the gate, like checking to make sure that you know Suryani is actually on the list, and it's only after being confirmed that she's on the list that she's allowed to 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 enter the 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 not even the home, but just the the, the compound, the, the the housing compound, so to speak. So you do get this vast contrast which which exists and I thought that was again very interesting to see how um, this uh, is, is also something that exists in the context of one single institution because generally speaking again uh, I have my biases is showing through here but in the Malaysian university context that I'm aware of um, you know the, the short version is that the the the, the rich kids, Generally speaking, they go off to one type of university, you know, private university, maybe a foreign university or whatever. Uh, and then the working class kids, they go off to the public universities or the state universities. It's not a common thing where you have a, a mixture of, of people from, as we have noted in this uh, particular film, very different backgrounds, socially speaking, or social, uh, uh, social economically speaking, of course. Um, converging together in one university. So I thought that was very interesting to see um, these different backgrounds come together in one uh, place. Um, and then there's also, uh, uh, you, you do get a different sense of the role here between Suryani's family and um, Rama's family, Rama and, and his family lawyer, for instance. Um, uh, and, and, and there's a key moment in the film where uh, Suryani is basically um, being called to... Um, uh, explain her, you know, what she's doing, which is to accuse Rama of, of doing all these things to her. And, and that's the truth, really, because that's what Rama did. Um, but the, the university was hoping that this is not something that would go out of hand. So they called both of them to kind of like um, a moderating uh, meeting, um, uh, an arbitration of sorts. So on one side, you see the Suryani's family um, being there, and on the other side, you see Rama and the, and and his family's lawyer <laughs> being there. Like the dad didn't care so much that he's he's not you know he's not going to make an appearance. It's just uh, you know too 
atas so that you know this is actually a bit too too small for him so it's like on the one hand it's like you know almost a matter of life and death for Suryani's family for her to be able to continue her education and whatnot but on the other hand you have a, a very different context a very different structure that looks as this like almost as if it's child's play um, and I feel that in a way this film touches on the power structures which exist here in Indonesia as well because we do have that particular dichotomy going on here um, just staying with this particular scene for a moment I, I thought it was an extraordinary scene Nadia we even had um, Suryani's father like begging um, getting down on his on his on his knees you know and begging um, for for Rama not to actually like come through with this so this is of course we see earlier a very proud man a very like principled man uh, you know uh, especially during the way that he holds on to, to, to the, um, you know, um, the Islamic principles and all this kind of stuff. He's very strong. He, he's very like independent. He's very this and whatnot uh, and all this kind of stuff. And in this scene, like, he's on his knees begging for, um, for his daughter to not be, um, uh, to not be taken to court. But that's a very specific term there um, in, that I've got now that, that was mentioned in the scene. Um, I just wonder what your thoughts are on this particular scene, Nadia. I think it's actually interesting because the main concern of, of Sora's father is for her daughter to not um, to not go to the courtroom in a sense. Mm. Meanwhile, Sora's priority is actually to know what's going on actually. Like what's actually going on, what's happening to her, did drama do it? and stuff like that. But at the same time, I think what the dad's experiencing is very much structural. I mean, even though if he did want to know what happened to his daughter, he can't really do much about it because he will. He, he know that um, if he actually investigated uh, that particular case, mm. it will probably cost them more money, which they can't afford. So I think it's very sad, but... It's also it's systematic. I think it's it's not hundred percent his fault, even though it, it kind of is as well. Like he he doesn't want to fight at all for the daughter, but uh, as opposed to the mother, which freed Sur afterwards. But but yeah, it's a, I would agree that it's also a very interesting scene, um, which shows the fragility of um, of the dad which is played by Lokman Sardi, which is known for, as we discussed on the episode before, like his persona is like very scary. And like, if you see a film and then there's Lokman Sardi, something's about to happen. Like he has this very tough guy um, persona, if you will. And then to see him begging on his knees, I think it's it's certainly, it's, it's saying something, which probably wouldn't be, which the message probably wouldn't be delivered as loud if the actor who plays it, is an actor with no tough guy persona presence present before, I think. That's a very good point. There's a bit of that intertextual um, reading that we're making, um, especially when it comes to discussing some of the stardom uh, associated with uh, some of these uh, actors. That is something that's going to make Jonathan very, very happy to know that we've mentioned both stardom and intertextuality in this particular episode. I think. <laughs> I don't know whether he knows or not. But anyway, so I'm coming back to this. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Um, it's not that he, you know, it's, it's like he's working with the cards that's been dealt with him. Like, Suru is all about justice at all costs. 
you know, we got to get the truth out there at all costs. But the dad is more like, you know, he's more pragmatic, more practical. He knows the actual consequences of what will happen if this goes through in that way. So it's a man speaking of experience, but unfortunately, as you can see here, it's not a particularly positive experience there. Um, speaking of stardom, um, we're, we're going to segue very briefly into a, <clears throat> a part of the episode to discuss some of the actors and, and, and talk about them in greater detail and whatnot. Um, before we bring the first part of our episode here to an end, um, there's Yayan Ruhian in this film, who plays Rama's dad. Um, <clears throat> on, I, I must say, I was so disappointed with, with him in this film. Um, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk a bit more about that in a short while. <laughs> but the reason why I'm disappointed is because he didn't kick anyone. Like, um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Yayan Ruhian is like, He's like a master martial artist. If we're talking about an action, an Indonesian action film worth its salt over the past, like, however many years, um, he's the man, you know, in Merantau, in um, uh, The Raid. Uh, I think he was also in The Raid 2, playing a different character, I think. I can't remember now. But but basically, if he was even in a Malaysian film called Wira, um, and he was a bad guy in that one. So the point is, if you see Yayan Ruhian on screen, you expect, you know, uh, people to be doubled over from from the body from the body blows, or to have their balls knocked off, or whatever, to have their heads kicked off and whatnot. So he's just like he's just chilling. He's just walking in. Papa, papa, kambayarin semuanya. It's like um, you know, it's, I I just like I kept waiting for him to kick someone. <laughs> he just didn't kick anyone. <laughs> so that's such a disappointment for me. Um, but just expanding the discussion a bit more to the rest of the cast members, um, Nadia just. Wonder if you can share a bit more of your thoughts uh, uh, about uh, some of the actors uh, and performance in this film. What do you think? I think for for most actors, it's pretty notable for me because it's kind of interesting that they chose like the actors who are famous enough, but not like super famous. Like we're not talking like Dylan famous, but like they're famous enough to get people to watch them. Uh, I mean, I personally know that um, the actor who played Rama, Julio Parengkuan, uh, is actually on Dylan as well. Uh, he played um, as Anhar, which is Dylan's um, enemy. And then Jerome Kurnia or or uh, Tarik, um, he actually played a film with Iqbal as well in Bumi Manusia, which I saw and it was great. And um, so I think all in all, their acting was was actually super good, I think, for me. And as for Yayan Rohian, I think I was not disappointed because I wasn't expecting expecting him to kick anyone. But um, but I would agree that it's not uh, his his performance there is not super memorable or anything. It's just it's kind of just there. Yeah, exactly. it's kind of just there. Yeah. That. That is a very good way of putting it. He's just there. Um, I do need to give, like, uh, uh, I mean, of course, I was being a bit flippant about Yaya now. For, you know, it could be that man is just tired. You know, we're at a chapet. You know, between all these films, you know, there's a lot of fighting here and there where you have to do all lot of training and whatnot. I just want to chill. <laughs> Make some money and chill and just sitting down. And, and, that, and that's fine. It's all good. Go for it, uh, uh, Mr. Yayan. Um I, I do need to make a note about Chico Kurnia, uh, uh, Kurniawan, though, um, because um, for me, I, I'm always very happy to see him 
in in uh, you know this this kind of major slash mainstream film. So the first time I saw him was in a film called Priya. It's a short film by Yudo Aditya, and um, <clears throat> and it's it's basically it's uh, it's a love story um, between a man and another man. Um, so that's you know you're setting it in the Indonesian context. There's going to be all sorts of different things and whatnot. But what I find interesting about the film is that the film is is Lemoy is very good, uh, and he did a very good job in it. But uh, we were also in the past lucky enough to have interviewed uh, Yudo Aditya, the film's director himself, and he talked a bit more about the process of looking for the actor to to star in this film. Um, and uh, he he spoke about. Uh, moments before the, the making of the film where it was made clear to Chico that, um, look, bro, this is basically, you know, it's a gay film for the lack of a better term. There are, of course, better terms. I'm just being a bit more reductive here for the purpose of, of you guys understanding what's going on here. Um, it's, you know, there, there might be repercussions from this. Um, it might not be, you know, as positive of an experience um, later on, especially in the context of Indonesia. And then, you know, this part of the world, really, in the general sense, you know, it's, it's just not as openly accepted um, by, by many of uh, many countries in Southeast Asia uh, for, for a number of different reasons. But Chico was still, like, very willing to push through with that and, and to just still take part in this. And, and, and he did a great job in that film. And, and as a result of that, I'm always happy to see him, like, if he's in a film like Possessive or whatever, he comes up and it's like, hey, that's Chico. So I'm... Happy to see him like uh, in 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 these films uh, from from such humble beginnings, uh, so to speak, and for him to also get an award at uh, at FFE, like best lead actor, apparently. So, um, so it's just great. So I'm just always happy to see uh, this kind of stuff happen there. So, so yeah, well done to you, Chico, uh, and and to the rest of the team. You know, we talked about Letitia earlier. Um, and, and whatnot. Uh, so yeah, good stuff um, all around. Uh, we're going to take a break here, ladies and gentlemen, um, bringing the first part of this episode to an end. When we come back, we'll be discussing a bit more of the bigger picture context in which we can kind of situate the film. So uh, don't go anywhere. Kamu ini kerap acap kali atau gemar pergi ke diskotik? Sabar kelakuan baik maksudnya apa? Tapi sur berhak merayakan kemenangan sur, Pak. Biasiswa lu hilang, Tung. Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second part of today's episode where we are discussing a bit more uh, about the film Penyalin Cahaya. And in this part of the episode, the context in which we believe um, we can situate uh, the film and its exhibition. So for me, I've, I've noted down a number of different points here. I think the first part we can just kind of like um, very blithely label as the legal discussion. And then in the second half, <clears throat> um, a bit more about the, the uh, sexual assault kind of thing um, in the context of the university uh, or universities in Indonesia as well as um, the film itself, right? Um, getting to the legal discussion, I believe that Penyalin Cahaya intersects with a number of different aspects of the law, such as the, the law on information and electronic transaction, uh, ITE. Hey, wait, am I right in saying that? ITE, ITE. <laughs> And the elimination of sexual violence bill, right? So it's not quite law yet. Still, it's a bill, a proposed law, right? Uh, which is a RUU PKS. Okay, um, talking about the 
ITE law first, commonly referred to in many uh, in many cases as the defamation law. Um, this is often applied in cases of perceived defamation and slander and all that kind of stuff, right? And this wide application has led to a number of cases of people being given scores of uh, what many would have regarded as uh, overreaching uh, punishment, okay? So we have, I've noted down here in the rundown, just a selection. There's plenty of these cases out there, um, but just a selection here. <clears throat> For instance, a law student in Yogyakarta being given a two-month jail sentence for exasperating about her experience in the uh, in the city. Uh, city. Is Yogyakarta a city, uh, Nadia? I would say so, yeah, I think. I want to say so. I want to say so as well. Suddenly I just had some doubts. I don't know why. <laughs> um, anyway, so in, in the city of Yogyakarta, so she was just like um, venting, I think, for, for the lack of a better term, uh, about some negative experiences she's had. Boom, two-month jail sentence and, um, you know, a substantial financial fine as well. Um, and then you have uh, the case of a mother's uh, a mother of three. Uh, she had a private Facebook chat with a friend about her husband's alleged domestic violence. Um, she was given a five months prison sentence um, because the husband basically said that this is something that defamed him. Uh, it's a form of slander or libel or something like that. And uh, the judges basically said, yeah, you're absolutely right, Mr. Husband. Um, here we go, five months for you for venting to your friend about something that your husband apparently did to you. Um, and the judges in this case ignored the fact that the husband or didn't take into so much uh, in, in, into account, really, the, the fact that the husband actually found out about this by hacking into her Facebook account. Um, most recently, um, just at the tail end of last year, we were looking at the case of uh, Saifu Mahdi, um, a lecturer from Shaikwala um, University in Aceh, um, being given a three-month prison sentence for criticizing uh, campus policy on WhatsApp. And it was deemed as a kind of slander against the dean of the campus. Um, <laughs> three months in prison for having your own ideas about how things are, you know, not so great about certain things. Um, he's not quite in jail, per se, because he has been granted amnesty by um, Joko Widodo. And this is actually not the first instance uh, of this law being applied uh, in this way. And then Jokowi, the president of Indonesia, coming in um, with, with a kind of amnesty to say that, you know, this one, we don't have to put him into jail or whatnot. So, so right now there's still, you know, the discussion about this is ongoing. And I do believe that there are efforts to kind of like draft more changes um, to this law. But I just wonder for you, Nadia, uh, the law being what it is, uh, does it have a certain effect on you? especially in terms of how you may communicate with people online? I think, yes, definitely. Like, probably like for, like for private chats, not really, because um, because I don't really talk about sensitive topics, I think. Um, but again, I don't really know what is deemed as sensitive, what is not, so I'm, I cannot be very sure. But um, for speaking... Up well, I personally don't have any any experience around that area. Thankfully, again, probably I'm just surrounded by by very decent people. Um, but I think of, uh, like for discussions on Twitter and stuff, where they usually ask you about what's your opinion. I think it's a thing in Indonesia. Like there are many Indonesian Twitter accounts. We call them base accounts for some reason. Like they are this like. 
um, official, not really official. Like they're, they're just like anonymous accounts, which, you know, which they initiate discussions and um, some of them. So you can submit like confessions or something and you will be anonymous there. And um, I think there are many times that I want to reply because sometimes uh, their story is like very messed up. But again, I'm like, is this the, the wise thing to do? So I think that's the biggest impact on me. Like my question to myself is not really, is it the, the right thing, thing to do? But rather, is it is it wise if I do this? Will this have a consequence for me in the future? Be it like in the in the workplace or something else? Because we'll never know, we'll never know. I think, I think that that's the biggest impact it has on me so far. How do you feel about that? I think as long as we're basing our opinions on the right, um, with, with the right right evidence and then with the right words, of course, probably like less cursing and stuff. I think it, it should be allowed, I guess. I mean, even if it, even if it will, well, yeah, that, that one I'm, I'm kind of confused too because yeah, you can, you, you can, I mean, on Twitter, on Instagram and stuff, you can easily just, you know, accuse someone of doing something they did not do. But also at the same time, I don't think we can cheat the situation the same as we cheat, you know, the boy who cried wolf. Just because one person said, it's uh, just because one person is lying doesn't mean everybody is lying. And uh, one thing that I noticed is that lately, every time um, there's been uh, you know um, an issue or news that this public figure did um you know did something or or this person did something um doesn't always have to be a public figure i th- i feel like the the public on twitter at least um they will be divided into two into three actually three three groups the one who sided with the victims the one who who think that the perpetrator still have something to say, and then the ones that are neutral or ju- or just doesn't speak, and then sometimes the the ones who are like strongly siding with the victim will say like, if you are um, if you're not speaking up, that means uh, that means you're um, you're siding with the perp- perpetrator. But I don't think that's true because sometimes most of the times of most of the times people who don't speak up they have their reasons, which actually might be sy- systemic as well. Because they're, you know, they're afraid of something more powerful than them. They're afraid of, I don't know, probably like their family or their partners, because that's a thing apparently. And um, probably like their institutions and stuff. So, yeah, I think, I think all in all, I feel like it's very confusing. I think, yeah, I I don't really have like one exact emotion that I can, um, that I can use to describe my feeling about this, but I think it's confusing in a way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree with you there. Certainly the, the term confusing is, is a catch-all term that can really be used to describe a lot of how a fair amount of people feel about these things. Um, you, you have, for instance, cases of uh, people who say that, um, you know, just, just going to the mosque to kind of ask the low, uh, to ask the, the the volume of the azan to be lowered, for instance, right? That for for the ladies and gentlemen listening to listening at home, that has landed people in jail before, um, and, and on the basis of using terms like this, like defamation and slander and all this kind of stuff. Even if it could be seen as something that is uh, fairly you know manageable per se, so so we do have this very gray area 
that, that all of us are working with. And I think that as a lecturer, sometimes it does kind of cross my mind as well about how these are some of the factors which can inhibit some of my students um, in, in speaking up. I, you know, as, as you yourself know, Nadia, always in, in many of our sessions in class, there's always a, an emphasis given to moments where randomly I ask people, so what do you guys think? <laughs> it's just, you know, um, and I'm, there's a part of me where I don't actually ask that anymore. Because if I just approach things from that general starting point, what do you guys think? Not that many people will step up to the plate to kind of really say what they think. Um, uh, and, and so I feel that a part of that is, is not, not necessarily a reflection of the fact that they may not necessarily know what to say. It could be that they just don't have any thoughts or feelings on the matter. But, but there's a part of me that just wonders whether they are also kind of like have been conditioned to not say so much for fear of, being wrong or for fear of being castigated for being wrong or for fear of having any other repercussions that could arise from the, um, you know, saying these things. And I think that is something, is that, that gray area that we can connect to this gray area, which can be quite confusing as well. So these are the kind of things that I feel that overall, even though from the outside, if you speak to um, uh uh, people from other countries in Southeast Asia. You know, we look to Indonesia and then we say there's a great amount of freedom in terms of what you can say, what you can do, how you can express yourselves. But you know, when, when you come into Indonesia and then you start to pay attention and then you kind of like, oh, okay, it's uh, not quite that really. You know, it's it's uh, there's just still that that pall, um, that, that, that cloud which hangs over a fair amount of people's interactions in all sorts of different ways. And I think a part of that could be connected to some of that confusion that you were talking about earlier. What can people say and what can't people say? It's, it's not quite as clear cut in many situations. And as we can see in the, uh, in the film itself, you know, of course, lest we forget, this is a Thoughts on Films podcast <laughs> episode. Um, as we can see in the film itself, it, you know, sometimes it feels like just saying the truth, you know, that, that, that's not really enough. It, even when you have the proof, that's not really enough um, because that you coming forward to say that this happened to me is perceived as you saying that somebody else did this to you. And therefore, you should also be responsible if this person feels that this is a form of defamation. Um, and so that's this victim-blaming culture, right? Um, it's, it's disappointing. And on that note, um, we are going to talk about uh, the RUPKS as well, um, officially known as the Elimination of Sexual Violence Bill, which is a proposed bill aiming to tackle sexual violence in Indonesia, giving more rights to victims and also to acknowledge uh, certain things like marital rape. Um, it was first introduced uh, over half a decade ago in 2016, but it has uh, languished in, in, the, in the legal process, so to speak, and it's yet to be put into law. Um, for a number of different reasons, a uh, fair amount of it political. Um, what may come through is actually a filtered version uh, because there are recent controversies removing any words related to the concept of sexual consent, right? If you talk about sexual violence, we are kind of really talking about the issue of consent, uh, which is um, universally discussed all over the world um, as, as one of the key factors in determining whether this is something that, you know, uh, you want to have uh, or, or to take place or not, right? Um, but this is actually a, a bit of an issue um, um, for, for a number of different people. 
Um, but, but first, with regards to the issue of consent here, um, the education minister, Nadim Makarim, uh, at the tail end of last year, or was it the middle of last year? I remember now. He issued this particular ministerial decree stating that uh, a lack of consent from victims is seen as a critical factor in defining sexual assault, right? So that was what he wanted to be put into the bill as well, but um, uh, uh, um, uh, in, into the, the proposed uh, law. But many groups, primarily Islamic ones, interpret this as a tacit kind of approval by the governments to the existence and the conduct of consensual extramarital sex. Um, so, so that's that's what's going on there. Uh, and a lot of that comes out in the context of, of university sexual assault cases as well, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there's been more than a few over the past number of years. Basically, since, you know, for, for a very long time, um, this is a short version, but um, it's, it's just that in the, more, in, in the past number of years, we were starting to have more and more people coming forward to tell, um, you know, others what happened to them. So a, a landmark case in 2018 is that of Agnes. Um, Agni is a student, uh, was a student, this is 2018, she might not be there anymore. Uh, she was a student at Universitas Gajah Mada, UGM. Um, and it's not her real name as well, Agni. So it's just a pseudonym to, to protect her identity. Um, <clears throat> she reported uh, a sexual assault uh, that, that happened to her. And it was, uh, you know, basically another student uh, uh, in, the, in the same program that kind of like uh, assaulted her. So the accused was removed from the program, but she herself was given a low mark uh, for, for that particular subject. And it was also castigated for bringing down the name of the university. Um, and this, all this is just really, really de de depressing. Um, it's sometimes reading about these stories, um, and I must give, you know, uh, credit to certain newspapers like the Jakarta Post, you know, at a time when not as many of the other media outlets kind of really, uh, you know, focus on that. I remember the Agni case was, um, the front page for quite a while, like kind of the program, you know, reporting on the piecemeal progress being made at different stages of the case. There, um, this is a bit of this is this is a problem. This is an issue. In fact, Nadim Makarim himself stated this to be a critical emergency, um, and he cited a 2020 survey by the Ministry of Education suggesting that 77 percent of Indonesian professors believe that sexual violence previously occurred on campus, but that nearly two thirds of them did not report these cases to their higher-ups. Um, so I, just coming to you again, Nadia, um, not necessarily expecting you to come up with a solution per se, because this, of course, is a complex uh, and complicated uh, issue, legal, uh, social, economic, in all sorts of different ways and whatnot. Um, but I'm asking you, I think in many ways, um, in part because, um, you know, maybe it's a bit unfair to identify you or your demographic per se, um, but you are a female uh, student, you are an Indonesian student, and you are also a Muslim. Um, uh, and, you, and you are a university student here. And it feels like in so many ways, there's so much of this that intersects with a fair amount of, of, of these uh, factors, so to speak, you know. Um, and, and, you know, for, for the record here, I'm a Malay, Muslim, Malaysian, et cetera, et cetera. But, but these things are not really so much to do with me. It's more to do with, um, you know, these factors or these contexts, right? Um, so I just wonder, like, do you think that this is actually um, uh, an issue that we kind of 
willing to try to solve uh, or get to the bottom of as quickly as possible. What, I mean, what do you think about, you know, when you read about stories of sexual assault um, and, and people protesting against all this and whatnot? I mean, how do you feel about all this, Nadia? I think most of the times it's very depressing, just like you said. And I think what um, what makes me feel truly sick about it is that people will say things like, um, it's because you don't dress properly and stuff. That's why you have to dress according to the religion. But but again, if we want to talk about religion, then don't just nitpick the parts of the religion that you like and then ignore the parts you don't like. That's not how it works. If you really want to blame the victim because they don't dress um, as... Um, as um, they don't just quote unquote properly, then you should take a look at the at the at the at the perpetrator as well. Because in the Quran, it it, it states that um, men should lower their gaze. Then why don't you mention about that? Like you 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 can't just pick one thing and then ignore the other thing. If you want to like go full on religious, then you know. Um, Take take both factors to consideration. Like uh, he shouldn't have like look at her in the in the first place even. So I think it's 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 very sad when people are like um, um, using religion to to blame the victim. When when I actually think it's just a matter of ego. I think actually they don't really think in a way. It's just they will find a way to blame the victim and, and then um, even though yes it is confusing because we cannot really prove anything as but i think it's kind of weird if the victim was asked to do uh was asked to present any evidence of the assault because how would you know if you are about to get assaulted like it's not something that you can prepare or something i i don't know probably but it's confusing because i cannot really think of what other method can be applied to other than asking for evidence, but I don't think the evidence method is applicable for everyone, especially since, um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it, it must be shocking for the victim as well. And when you're shocked, you tend to forget things sometimes, I think. So, yeah, I think it's definitely one thing. Yeah, I think that's all. Yeah, certainly the victim blaming aspect we can see very much in Penyalin Cahaya as well. You know, even from the dad um, who has commented a number of times, like, I mean, why are you addressing like that? Um, and then the, the day after she went to for the scholarship interview, um, the people were commenting on her appearance as well. Like, why well, you dress like this? Oh, you're ready to go for a party? Or it's just um, this is strong thing. And that's even before. It's even before she actually got to find out and, and to kind of like realize that, um, you know, pictures have been taken of her, um, that something has happened to her and she has forgotten. She didn't you know what happened. That's before that. Even before she knows, everybody else is already like, you know, very hardcore, hardline, um, very, very conservative, very, um, uh, uh, you know, very, very harsh, really, with, with their judgments of, of um, Suryani and, and it feels, again, it's, it's so depressing as you're right. And it's, it's, it's kind of, I think we kind of need to point out that uh, Letitia's character, Farah, is also um, um, very, 
um, you know, she is a bit of the way she is in the film because uh, she herself has been subjected to a fair amount of this as well. Like she, she would emerge later on as a key character in trying to kind of bring down all these things. Um, yet it becomes like problematic uh, because of, of um, you know, uh, she, she just didn't want any of this thing here. Like she knows that just like Suryani's dad, that she knows what Indonesian society in the context of the film um, it's like how they will react and what will actually happen. You want to find this justice, you're not going to find it. At least not in this way and not, not um, for your benefit uh, in a direct and immediate sense. So, so that's very, very, um, it's very depressing. It's very depressing because it is, it's a big thing and it's so difficult to change. And even when you have, you know, so-called, um, new people coming in like Nadim Makarin. For those of you who don't know, he's he's the guy who created uh, Gojek. Um, creator or co-creator or something like that. But basically, he's the Gojek guy. So we're going to take one of these startup guys. He's now going to be the Minister of Education. He's going to come in with this. And yet still, people kind of push back against a fair amount of what he tries to do. So I think the ministerial decree is still in place. But these decrees, you know, it's easy to kind of, I, I think, kind of like, uh, overturn or, or be overruled by another decree should a different minister come in and think, you know what, we don't have enough victim blaming. So, so there is that. Um, and, and, and so much of this discussion is also very, very uh, relevant to the film, not just in the context of the story of the film, but also something to do with um, the, one of the co-writers of the film as well. So ladies and gentlemen, if you watch the film on Netflix, you will notice the name of the film's co-writer, Hendrikus Priya, is no longer in the credits list. Um, and that is because it was discovered that he had engaged in forms of sexual harassment in the past. Uh, not, not actually during the time of the production itself, apparently, but certainly in the past, uh, he has been noted for his predatory behavior. Uh, and it was even discussed, as reported by Tirto here. It was even discussed in various forums um, uh, since 2019. Um, so his name is no longer in the credits list. Um, he is also no longer a part of the production company, Rekata Studio. Uh, just very briefly, Nadia, before we kind of go to the end of the episode, um, does this kind of affect a bit more of your thoughts and feelings on the film, maybe? Like, to know that one of the co-writers of the film, which touches on this, this issue of, uh, you know, um, uh, invading someone's privacy, um, uh, you know, committing certain acts of sexual assault, you know, um, touching on issues related to do with victim blaming and all this kind of stuff and whatnot. Seems like this co-writer himself, uh, he has been alleged that he has taken part in some of these things himself. Like, does it kind of give you a Bill Cosby moment in a way? <laughs> You're like, you know, you're looking at this and think, ah, oh, you know what, I can't, uh, I can't watch this anymore. I don't know. What, what do you think, um, Nadia? Actually, in terms of how it impact, it it did it does impact me, um, but not to the extent where I don't want to watch the film. But um, I think the biggest impact is that, well, I mean, I read about the news, and then and then I read uh, some more of the Twitter um, Twitter discussions about it. So when I watch it, I was not in an entirely objective state of mind. 
um, I was biased already in a way. So basically one of the Twitter accounts, I forgot um, what's the name, but basically um, they mentioned how um, the um, the story itself, it, 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 it can be seen as exploitative because it's a very whodunit film, right? Like, uh, And then the way the the person the Twitter person saw it, it's like uh, it's it's like the main character is defined by her um, assault experience only. Like we don't really have the moments where we actually see how Sur feels, what's her emotions, and stuff like that. And when I read it, I was like, um, that's probably true. But I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of conflicted because this was meant to be a um, a mystery film, so. I don't know if if emotional is actually the 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 kind of emotion that the director is intended for too. But yes, it's it's conflicting for sure. But it it, it does impact me. Yeah. Yeah, I think in that sense, I was perhaps lucky in a way. Well, that when I watched the film, I watched it without knowing a bit more about the the, the controversies. And in fact, it's only <clears throat> excuse me in preparing for the the rundown of of our episode here today that I came across uh, a fair amount of these uh, other things um, to do with the with the script writer there. Um, so I, I I had a I guess well, for the lack of a better term a, a bit more of an objective view when I started to watch the film. Um, so that's that's the thing here. I think I would have felt very much the same way as you did. I, I I'm not sure whether I would have like um, been as enthusiastic about it. And I think it is, it's a bit tricky. It's a bit tricky. Um, I think I would have still watched the film and I would have still enjoyed it, um, even though it was two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so it feels like it's the only time I can watch films nowadays. Um, and and I, I think I would have uh, really made the effort to kind of still talk about it. But But certainly, you know, If if that is something that I had known before I seen the film, it would have affected a bit more of how I thought and felt about it. In terms of the feelings of Sur, I don't know. You're right in saying that uh, this genre doesn't really give much space for for feelings per se, but but I feel like we got more than a bit of what Sur was was going through. I mean, I I, I sense her desperation. Um, you know, when when her family uh, kicked her out. You know, um, when um, Uh, she she failed the scholarship interview, especially that that scene. Uh, you know, it's like she's trying to race to come to the same conclusion that everybody else. She's trying to remember what happened to her. There's probably still some of the alcohol in the system, so we can kind of like still see how even with all this, she's still trying to like. Um, but but that has nothing to do with 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 you know this scholarship. I I still fulfill all the criteria and all this kind of stuff. Um, So, so you sense that desperation, um, uh, but I also like how I don't know how how would you expect emotions to be shown here? It feels like um, she feels all these things, but then there's also a, a strength and creativity about how she's going about this that I greatly respect and admire. Um, so, so just looking at what I see in in the film per se, um, you know how she goes about this. It's not she, she's not staying at home weeping crying her, her eyes out, eh, you know, the world is against me. Or she actually goes out and does something about it. Um, and, and I thought that was just admirable. It's great. And you don't really, I don't know. I, 
I don't know, you, 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 can, you can correct me here. I don't see so much of that um, in, in Indonesian cinema or in Malaysian cinema. You know, there's a lot of the, the melodramatic women crying because of this and all this kind of stuff. I'm not denigrating that, but, but this kind of depiction, this kind of performance, this kind of character, I just don't see as much of that, um, especially after somebody like her has been subjected to a very um, difficult and traumatic situation. Um, am I right in saying that? Is this a common thing or am I, is it just me not watching enough Indonesian films, Nadia? I think I agree with you, yeah. I agree with you. And then again, talking about emotions, I think actually we can see her effort um, into all of this is actually a way to channel her emotions. So yeah, that's why I'm kind of conflicted. I don't really agree um, again because emotions emotions doesn't doesn't necessarily mean you have to stay at home crying it can also yeah because she, she's frustrated basically right and then she she stayed with amin and all of that so i think it's it's a form of um emo- channeling her emotions in a way yeah fair enough anyway so i think um we've come to the end of the episode here nadia um I, you know, uh, we've talked about the film. We've talked about the bigger picture context that I think surrounds the film. Um, is there anything else that I've not talked about that you kind of want to bring into play here? Or are, are we good to end the session for today? I think um, I think that's all. And I, I would still recommend the film. I think it's, I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah, it's, it's very good. <laughs> it's very good, actually. Yeah, so, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we mentioned earlier it won 12 out of 17 nominations or uh, 17 categories it was nominated for the most of any film um, at uh, Festival Film Indonesia. So, you know, nothing to sniff at here. Absolutely. Great film. Go check it out if you haven't. Um, but although having said that, if you haven't checked it out, what, what are you doing listening to this episode, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> and on that note... Um, yeah, it's uh, we're done for today. Thank you very much for your time, Nadia. Um, say goodbye, Nadia. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> and it's a goodbye for me. Bye-bye. Everything is okay. I just want to play.